This is the Talking Shop Media Podcast, episode two. I'm Mark, one of the founders of Talking Shop Media. And in this edition of the podcast, I'm joined by Jim Hopkins. Welcome, Evening Jim. All. Evening all. How are you doing? Exceedingly well. Very cold, but yeah. cosy in the wee ducket. So when, when we, well, as it's quite cosy in the wee studio, uh, when we're recording this, we've just had the tail end of what some people were calling the Beast of the East, Beast from the East 2. Wasn't it quite as bad as the last one? Oh, no, it's quite gentle. I was trapped in Edinburgh, the last one. I was supposed to be flying to Shetland. And uh, it was one of those ones, it was a paying job. So I thought, well, I can't just say, well, I'm not going to do this. So I drove to Edinburgh the, the afternoon of the big snowstorm. And within half an hour of getting there, and I had to check into a hotel because my flight was early the next morning. Within half an hour of doing that, the flight was cancelled. So I was stuck in Edinburgh. There's worse places to be trapped. I, it was a... Holiday, a holiday and express, so that was a thing, it was a bit... Okay, it was hellish. Aye. <laughs> <laughs> and the drive back the next day was interesting, I think, from Edinburgh to back here, just northeast of Glasgow, I think I passed four other vehicles on the road, it was really, really sketchy. Anyway. It's certainly not been that bad. No. So, tell the listeners who you are, what it is that you do. I mean, I know that people don't like me, what is it you do? Well, I'm a human being, that's what I do, I love, but you know, work-wise, what do you do? Well, I've been many things, but at this moment in time, I own a company called, uh, and created a company called Spirit of Alba, which is a specialist whiskey company. And presently, we just opened a shop in uh, November of last year uh, in Kirkintilloch, a specialist spirit shop. And it's uh, been going very well, even in the midst of a global pandemic. So when I invited you on, that was one of the things I'm thinking, I, I can't avoid asking Jim about this. Who in their right mind opens a shop in the middle of a pandemic? Absolutely no. No offence. Absolutely nobody. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, but you did it, so you, you, you strapped the cojones on and you went for it. Yeah, well, I, I've had the business for five years, almost coming on six, uh, specifically as, a, as an online business, but I always wanted to be present in my town, I'm born and bred Kirky, uh, Kirky guy, so I wanted to be here. The prices of the, sh the shops uh, over the past few years have been incredibly high and there was no way I could do it. But at this time, the prices took a little dip and I took a chance uh, and it's worked out well for me. Excellent. So your, your shop... Uh, we're not going to get into sort of pandemic talk, but I think we need to cover this. So you, your shop's classed as an essential business. Absolutely. So I did check all this before I before I opened because I didn't want to try and open a shop and then be closed without having made any money because that would just have been death uh, for the retailer. Uh, I checked to see that we would be classed as essential and we were. Uh, so I was able to open over November, December, over the Christmas period. And to be honest, you wouldn't have been able to tell that there was a pandemic with the, with the sales that we were able to do. So I was very happy. Uh, January and February have been somewhat uh, slower. They always are in the drinks trade. Uh, add the pandemic, add the bad weather, you know, and the lockdown three or whatever it is. You know, it all adds. But it's it's been okay. It's been okay. Good. Can you describe to people listening? what your shop looks like. And I'll explain why I'm asking that because I've been into specialist whiskey shops before, but I don't think yours looks like a sort of cookie cutter specialist whiskey shop. 
can you explain your thinking behind explain what it looks like and why you've designed it that way sure you know i don't come from uh a whiskey background it's something i came to latter in life uh i've had experience in lots of other retail uh academia hospitality and i wanted to bring all these things together and yes it doesn't look like your normal uh specialist whiskey shop I wanted it to have a a welcoming feel you've been to the shop Mark you know there's a there's a huge leather couch in there that I welcome people to come and sit down and if they see someone come in and have a chat yeah you know I'm, I'm quite welcome with that I don't want them to come in and come out and be in a rush take your time have a look we'll sit down and talk to you we'll yeah uh we have the music playing we have the I remember reading a book years ago that talked about uh, as someone walks into a shop, it's the visual aspect. There's the audio aspect, the, the music that's playing, and surprisingly, the smell. And I tried to focus on those three things, which sounded strange to lots of people. But the thing that people come, they come into the shop and they say, well, that's a beautiful smell. What's that? And then they say, oh, that's different. There's a cow. Can we come in? Yeah, come in, sit, make yourself home. Is that because the whole idea of whiskey is it's a, whiskey's a social... Whiskey is inherently tied to being social. So is that part of your thinking? You're not just thinking about retail. You want to tie in the social element. Absolutely. As I say, I was in academia before. I was a historian. Uh, and looking at the history of uh, whiskey... And it's a company with Scotland, you know, history, geography, uh, the social aspect, the political aspect, everything. It, it's all entwined and whiskey all just goes through the little thread. Mm. Yeah. So th that social aspect was important to me and it's been missing. I don't know if we'll go into this later, but let me say it just now. It's been missing from Kirkintilloch. Kirkintilloch for 50 years had been a dry town. That only ended in, what, 1969. But the following 50 years, it's been uh, a continuation almost of that sort of mentality. And I wanted to, to change that and bring back the, the, that happy social aspect that whiskey brings, mm -hmm. not the, the negative aspects. And that's what I want to try and bring to the fore. And Kirk and Tillich as a town has a close connection to whiskey. Do you want to talk a wee bit about... The, the history of sure. a particular Japanese distillery in Kirtantilloch. Sure. Let, let me even go further. But, but people don't know there is a history, uh, a whiskey history in Kirky, specifically because of that those dry town years. It sort of wiped everything clean. And then the following years, uh, whiskey businesses and you know, have just sort of bypassed Kirtantilloch in Eastern Bartonshire. But as I look back, Kirky has had about nine distilleries within its, the town borders. Now, the majority of them would be small, what we call farm distilleries, producing their own, uh, which they would sell on to bigger distilleries for blends. But there was you know, one huge distillery called Belfield, which uh, would have stood where St. Uh, Ninian's, uh, beside the canal. And then, of course, the, there is the, the, the bigger story, I think, for Kirk and Tillich. Uh, and... Amazingly, 
in the whiskey history, it's, it's a woman who, who stands out, a woman by the name of Rita Cowan, who came from and was born in Kirkintilloch. And she happened to meet a Japanese man by the name of Masataka Takatsuru. Easy for you to say. Absolutely. <laughs> Especially with a <the> whiskey. <laughs> this guy came knocking in her door in Kirkintilloch uh, before the Second World War. He'd been sent by uh, his uh, company uh, to discover the the secret of whiskey making because they just couldn't do it. So he came over, uh, enrolled in Glasgow University to try and do some chemistry courses and just wanted to try and find out something. He met Rita's sister who was studying at... Glasgow, and she invited him back. And so he knocked in the door, and Rita, almost immediately, she writes in her diary, she fell for him. Uh, and there was a, a joint immediate link there. And very quickly, they they fell in love. They, they got married within a year. Uh, and at that point in history, that was a very difficult thing to do. The family... Uh, thought it was the wrong thing and wouldn't support it. And so they, they eloped, they married in a registry hall in, in the Carlton. <laughs> wow. And then uh, they ended up in all places uh, down in Campbellton, where he uh, worked in a distillery for uh, quite a while. And then they both went to Japan. And that's where the story for Japan really begins, because he became... They're both known as the father and mother of Jap the Japanese whiskey industry. He created the, the Nika Whiskey Corporation. But it was it was her, it was Rita, who was the the hard worker. She was the one who got the money to create the business. She was the one who got all the supporters, uh, Japanese and uh don't the, the UK the, the the colonies to to come in and and support this whole thing, and it became. Well, today it's one of the biggest. Uh, there are two big companies in in Japan, Nika and Suntory, but that is mainly down to one Kirk and woman. That is an amazing story, and, and that <clears throat> you and I had, had met a, a few years ago, um, when you were doing one of your um, sort of tasting sessions and we'll, we'll come back to that side of the business in, in a minute and um, off the back of that we worked together on a job where you were hosting a, a night to sort of celebrate this was it the centenary of of them meeting and then the, the forming of their relationship it was th that was a my goodness time's gone on was that 2018 20 no it's just it last was, year it was um it was 2019 yeah towards the end yes now, I knew that date was coming up in the calendar and I thought there's going to be a huge to-do within the Scottish whisky industry. And I thought the Eastern Bancher Council would do something as well. But everything stayed silent. So I started to make a fuss and I said something needs to be done. You know, whether it's a put a blue plaque in the wall somewhere, you can't put it in the, the, the family house because you knocked it down. Wow. <laughs> Uh, there's nothing left of that period. So I said, well, something needs to be done. It's the centenary of them meeting together in Kirkintilla. Let's do this. And they 
basically there, there was a nod, but nothing else. So I went ahead and I organised it, uh, invited the, the, the Japanese ambassador, uh, wrote to Scottish Parliament, invited the First Minister, uh, and it was a very successful night. The ambassador couldn't come, but the the consul from Edinburgh was very happy to come with his wife. He was a really nice guy. He was. Uh, and in fact, he's invited me through to Edinburgh on a couple of occasions now, just a, a, as a thank you. So that, that's been great, and we hope to continue that link so that we can do something uh, longer term within whiskey between Japan and Kirkintilloch. Uh, but yeah, but I invited all the councillors, many who didn't come because they felt it was the wrong thing to do. They might, I might try and pull some political manoeuvres. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. But despite that, I mean, it, it was a great night and it opened my eyes. I mean, I'm like you, born and bred in this town. I had no idea of the history between Kirtantilloch, the distillery, or, or the world of whiskey in Japan. Um, I, I knew it had been a dry town for... Fifty or so years, I knew that, but um, yeah, it, it was it was interesting. So, so the history of of that particular woman and that relationship with her husband leads me to ask: What's your connection, Mister? You mentioned you used to be a historian. So, what's the story there? Yeah, well, I'm I'm fifty seven now. I only came into this business when I was about fifty years old. Wow! So uh, right. you know, it's okay. a it's a change of lifestyle. For most of my life, I, I was uh, working in Eastern Europe, Soviet Union, completely different world uh, as an academic based in Sofia, teaching uh, Bulgarians, Balkan and Ottoman history. Wow. Which was uh, <laughs> an amazing period in my life. I still have many good friends there. Uh, most people... Go on to ask me then, well, how did you end up there? Not how did you end up in the whiskey industry, how did you end up there? Yeah. So, and that is a longer story. And I don't know, maybe I should I should let you know. Go for it. My father uh, was born in Czechoslovakia. Uh, he was forced to leave at the Second World War when the Germans invaded Czechoslovakia into the, uh, the area known as Sudetenland. So he and his brother were forced to either join the Wehrmacht or to be placed in prison. And he and his friends were placed in prison. Within a few months, they were able... There was five of them escaped. Two of them were shot dead during the escape. My uncle got a bullet to the skull and uh, all his days he had a metal plate in his head, which was fantastic for airport stunts, but... <laughs> Father got away uh, without any injuries. He ended up in this country, joined the RAF, uh, became a very uh, successful wireless operator uh, and joined a... was asked to join the... Oh, no, it's gone from me, the 617 Squadron, which was the Dambuster Squadron. He was asked to join that as a wireless operator. And they were all being trained up for that famous raid on the, where they got their name, the Dam, the Dam Busters. Uh, on a few evenings prior to that, as young men do, and they were all very young, uh, they were playing in the pool, 
shenanigans they held him down. He burst one of his eardrums. Oh, for a radio operator. Yeah. He was useless. He couldn't go on that raid. Someone else went to his place and his plane never came back. Wow. Uh, somehow he managed to get over that, stayed in the regiment, uh, in the squadron, went through many other experiences, pictures of him all over the place, none of them which are recorded in his, uh, <laughs> his uh, history. Uh, Diary? Yeah, yeah, sorry, that's what I'm trying to say. But I mean, pictures from Africa, pictures from India, it was everywhere. But he came home, uh, settled in a little town called Kirkintilloch. How he got here, I do not know. Family name was uh, Aim. And that, at that point in time, you didn't think it, it, it worked. And there wasn't a lot of acceptance and it sounded German and... Mm. So he was just wondering what to do, and at that moment in time, passed a dairy, a dairy cart passed him with the name Hopkins. There was a famous local dairy in Bishop Briggs called Hopkins Dairy, hmm. and therefore we became the Hopkins. Wow, just like that. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the, the, I found out about this very early in my life. My father died when I was three years old. Right. I think the effects of the war had serious mental effects on him, I think what we call ADHD now. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't known then. You know, he drank, he smoked, he done things he shouldn't have done, and it took its toll. But after the war, he was never allowed to go back to Czechoslovakia. After the war, the Russians came in, and those who had fought on the side of the, the Allies were seen as traitors, so they, they were never allowed back home, or they would be placed in prison, a concentration camp. So he never got to see his, his family. He died in 67. Mum tried to go over to see the family that he'd, we'd never met. At this point, I was three years old. In 68, they allowed a visa for her to go. So she went with her young lad who'd turned uh, four years old. And if anyone knows the history, in the, the spring of 1968, there was a, a rising, a feeling of freedom that was going through some of these countries, perhaps an early sense of perestroika, glasnost, whatever you want to call it. But the Russians just came down in it like a clamp and all the, the armies of the Eastern Bloc were told to invade Czechoslovakia. And so the village, that the small town that we were staying in uh, was surrounded by these armies coming through. So while you guys were there, so you'd got into the country and then this kicks off? Yeah, yeah, wow. we, we were having a... I mean, I'm, I'm still young, but, but I remember that it was, it was just a beautiful time. I was meeting family that I'd never met before. So I'm watching. In the news, it's saying that the Russians are coming in the, and the rest of the... some of the armies from the... the the, uh, the Iron Curtain, the Eastern Bloc. And I'm watching out the window and I'm hearing this rumble and I see the tanks coming up the, the main road and stopping in the square. And I'm, I'm excited, I'm clapping my hands and I'm turning around and realise that everyone's crying and not uh, understanding the severity of it. But very quickly, I, uh, 
I learned that severity and it's something that changed my life forever. And I apologise if I got a little bit... Uh, not at all, mate, not at all. Here. If you ever remember the film uh, Schindler's List, there's this am amazing scene in one of the ghettos, the old building, and you hear the, the German troops you know, stamping up in their jackpits and the wooden floors. That's, that's what the sound was, coming to the door. And it was just this clatter on the door, and it was obviously hitting the door with a with the rifle button. My grandpa opened the door, and they placed the rifle button in his head, and he dropped dead there and then. And then the soldiers came in, and in that room there was my mum, my aunt, my gran, and some of my cousins. And there in front of me, every woman was brutally raped by these soldiers. Jeez. The the officer in charge had come by me, he spoke English. He took out his gun, he held it to my head and looked at everyone and he said, it's, it's okay, son, they're, you know, they're fine. And my mum just said, you know, close your eyes. But that, I'd say that was the moment that changed my life forever. And I grew up with uh, exceeding hostility to, towards uh, the East, towards communism, towards Russia. And I'd done everything in my power that I would be able to uh, have revenge. That's what my life was about. So I was involved in many things throughout my life. So just, just how did you get back to, to Scotland? Uh, soon afterwards, uh, the authorities came and just you know, revoked the visa that we had and sent us home. Uh, my mum basically had a mental breakdown. But the damage had been done by that point, yeah? The damage had been done. Uh, my mum had a mental breakdown. Uh, I stayed with uh, relatives for a short time. But she was a strong woman, got her act together. We went back in 1972 wow. to celebrate the golden wedding of my uh, mama and papa, uh, great grand and grandpa. Uh, so that was a wonderful occasion. Uh, and in many ways, it it washed clean a lot of the hatred and, well, not, but a lot of the bad feelings. And we, but that put me, I've, I've worked all of my life majority of my life in Eastern Europe and Soviet Union. Uh, I used to, I won't say too much because it's probably still incriminating, uh, but I used to take things like uh, medical, medical equipment and things like into the Soviet Union uh, secretly uh, for people who needed it but weren't allowed it. Uh, done things throughout the whole of East, Eastern Europe and strangely enough, settled in Sofia. I'd been during the time when I'd been back. You now I'd done my, you know, my undergrad, my and my postgrad, and became a, a doctor of, of of history and philosophy. So I'd been busy, but uh, <laughs> that's how I, I was able to go to Bulgaria and, and got that position at university. Uh, yeah, I adopt, we adopted our son in Bulgaria. My son's now 21, 
uh, we adopted a son as a baby, Adam. Uh, he has severe and complex special needs. Not that we knew that at the time and it wouldn't have made any difference, but uh, he and uh, the support that we've had to give him has really directed the rest of our life. Mm. So at that point, it became apparent that we would have to come home. Before that, we'd uh, thought about other ways of making money that we could stay. So I'd looked at opening a shop in Sofia called Made in Scotland, and I'd started to make contacts with uh, whiskey makers, distilleries, etc., about doing something along with lots of other Scottish uh, you know, luxury goods. And that didn't happen, so we, we had to come home. But that idea and the contacts were still in my mind, and I decided, well... My speciality in academia, there wasn't any place for it in in Scottish universities. So I had to do something else to look after my family. So that's why I went into this business. So what are the, that was one of the questions that, that I, I plan to ask every guest that comes on the podcast. What, what bearing on the business that you have now did your education have? So how, how would you answer that? You know, for me, there's not a, a direct correlation, probably. But for me as a historian, I started to look at the history of, of whiskey, which drove me into the whiskey of history in Kirkintilloch, and realising that there had been quite a strong uh, and successful uh, things happening in Kirky many years ago. I thought, why couldn't that be like that again? We just need to, you know, to start something. I just wanted to start very small. I just wanted to make some money for, to, for my family. In all honesty, that's all I wanted to do, uh, which suddenly became much bigger things just through accidents of, of fate, <laughs> like uh, getting phone calls from people to, to say, can you find me a very special whiskey and being able to do it? And from there being invited to... Uh, take whiskey over to the Formula One events. Remember well, you telling me about yeah, that? Well, well, which opened up lots of other mm. <laughs> avenues. Yep. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm moving in a world which was very different to that that I knew, yeah. but which I enjoyed. Yeah. <laughs> so so the, when you started Spirit of Alba, obviously, mm. you know, the shop opened three months ago, four months ago. Yes. And I know you'd planned the shop for, for a bit of time, because we'd spoken about it back in, I think, 2000, the start of... 2019. That's right. I think we, we were talking about it. Um, so when Spirit of Alba launched, what did the business look like? If I, you know, to, to an outsider, what did the business look like? From the very start? Yeah. Me sitting in my living room with a, you know, trying to contact people saying, how do I get your whiskey? And then say... <laughs> and then so it was just phone calls? You are just making calls? Trying to I was expand the network? To... You had made some contacts, and I found in business it's it's through talking to people, and through contacts you make good friends, you make business friends, you make business, but they all lead on to other people, and then that that business circle and friendship circle enlarges, and that that's the way it's been. And I've you know now you go into the diary and it's full of it's full of whiskey people now. Yeah. 
Brilliant. It, it's an amazing change, but it, you have to go there and you have to reach out and you have to talk to people. And I wasn't afraid to say, look, I don't know, how do I do this? So you, just on that point then, you know, I'm thinking of maybe younger people listening to this. Um, and obviously there's a whole thing, you fake it till you make it, all that type of thing. And, and there's nothing wrong with having a bit of blag about you now and again. But would you advocate to maybe a young person who wants to start out in business to admit they don't know everything or to not pretend that they've got all the answers? I think if you pretend you've got all the answers, you'll soon get found out. She say a bit of blag. I'm quite good at that. I, I think it's being assured of yourself. I'd done the work. I'd looked to see if it would be successful. I knew it would be successful. Whether I could m make a success of it was another thing. But I knew that I've got the fortitude to go through things and I was willing to do it and my, f my family was willing to support me. So I've done that, and it's just, uh, yes, I think you do have to be honest. Yeah, there's a bit of blagging involved, there is. But it's a, I did go to people and say, look, this is what we want to do, this is where I'm going to be, but I need help in how to get there. And people, well, definitely in the whiskey trade, were willing to help. Would you say internationally? Because I know you've, you've obviously done business internationally. Would you say... Being Scottish is a bonus. You know, de definitely. And in all all marks of life, uh, as as an academic, as a friend and in retail, uh, being Scottish has great aplomb. People want to know you. People are desperate to know about Scotland. Uh and there is always this difference. And I don't want to be anti-English. <laughs> I definitely don't. But wh wherever I go, people say, oh, I prefer the Scots. Or, you know, and it, even that starts to open doors in different places. So, yeah, it's it's useful. I'm very glad I'm Scottish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yep. definitely <laughs> proud helps. Of it. Yeah. Definitely helps. So one of the things I'm always interested in learning about when I speak to someone that runs a business, is how they handle the marketing of the business. So your business is, is still relatively new, and the shop especially. So how, how have you dealt with, with the marketing, the sort of PR side of things? It's something I knew needed to be done, and needed to be done well. For the first few years online, you know, I just used to put little posts up on Facebook and Instagram because that's all I knew what to do. And it didn't really do anything. And then you've seen some other companies who weren't much bigger than I am doing much better things when it came to social media and advertising. And I, I had to learn quickly and how, how to do that. And it was through, you know, just talking to people that I met someone uh, who's become a good friend now, a good brother. Uh, I'm not sure I understand. <laughs> my phone's picked up something. It's the worst I thought you've you've been shouting on my phone. Sorry about that, Jim. Carry oh, on. Yeah, I don't understand. Or, uh, yeah, good friend, good brother called uh, Craig Simpson, who is an absolute hero at social media. And Craig's come, uh, you know, just become one of the family. He's working with me in spirit of Alba now. Uh, and he has taken us on leaps and bounds. Uh 
and a lot of the success that we are having now is down to to his knowledge of you know, that aspect of advertising and social media, which is something I didn't know about and I knew I needed somebody there who did. And branding as well, because that's one of the things I think that's quite striking about Spirit of Albert is it's got a very distinct brand presence. So was Craig involved in that as well? Absolutely. Uh, originally, I, I'd worked with the, the old branding, which was okay. <laughs> was it quite tartan, if I remember right? Was there, was there tartan in it? No, 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 no. That there wasn't tartan, but there was a. It was there was the the, the deer, the stag, but right. which is almost everywhere when you look at the whiskey industry, and can cause lots of problems. Uh, and in a sense, it was quite old fashioned. And Craig came on board and said, "No, that needs to change. Let's," and brought a more modern look to the shop. So you've got that traditional modern sort of link, which is it's probably why Craig and I work so well together as well. Craig's a lot younger than I am, you know, so it's the old dinosaur and the <laughs> you know, the young gun. But you know, we work well together, and I think it's we're making waves. Would you, where you were talking there about when you were starting out with your own marketing, etc., and, and you know you, you look at other businesses and they're maybe doing particularly well. When I used to do training for Digital Tourism Scotland, um, a lot of the time it would be a distillery would send a couple of people from their marketing department along. So I would get the chance to meet them, you know, in a room full of other people. And what I would often hear was their hands were tied. So they would work in the distillery, but their hands were tied because, because the distillery was owned by a parent company that was based down south. And the overarching marketing for the products from that distillery was controlled by marketeers in some well, somewhere in London, for example. Absolutely. Yeah, that and not only London, that I say that the majority of Scottish distilleries are owned by foreign entities, not just English, I mean all over the world. Uh Russia, China everywhere. Uh and yes, they have the controlling interest and that can affect the way that other companies do their advertising. Or how how they can sell, so it's, it's something you know. Uh, I I'm a small you know tadpole in a, in a big pond just now, but I've got to learn from that. Uh, we've got bigger plans, but we need to take control of them ourselves and mm-hmm. be the ones who you know point and lead the way that we want to go, and not give that into the hands of other people. Yeah, but conversely, you brought Craig in. So Craig doesn't have a background with whiskey, does he? No, he, he didn't necessarily, and it's something that we've we've grown in together, and he's learned very quickly, and that's opened doors for him as well with other companies yeah. Yeah. Uh, and doing uh, social media and advertising for them, which helps us as well because we, we learn from those experiences. Yeah, absolutely. So j- just where my train of thought's going is, you know, you've got on the one hand, you might have a... a a marketing agency down south who's contracted by a company that owns a distillery in Campbelltown and this marketing agency has no real knowledge of the industry and and that's what I was hearing, that's the feedback I was getting Um, and then you've got yourself who is learning or, or was learning all the time about the whiskey industry 
didn't really know about marketing, brought in a guy who did know about marketing, who, but who didn't necessarily know whiskey either. But you've you both had to absolutely absorb yourself in the the product that you're selling. And I don't mean getting drunk all the time, right? No, no, no but it's become, it's it's 100%. It, it, it needs to become, it needs to become your life. Uh, and I think especially for for the first few years, I think it's the same for any business or anyone that's thinking of going into business, that that needs to absorb you completely to the sacrifice of many other things. Now, I think I know, it is, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's one of the things that people completely overlook. Um, I, I don't know whether you've experienced it, but I've had people say to me, oh, I'd love to have my own business. Oh, it must be great. Oh, you pick your own hours. You don't pick your own hours. Every hour is work hour. Oh, absolutely. That's the way it's like. That's what it's like. Absolutely. And it, I mean, even more so with the shop now, because I've got to work the shop hours, and then I have to go home and do the rest of the stuff, yep. which isn't getting done during shop hours, and extending the work and extending the range. And so, and that's to the, you know, the sacrifice of a family. Thankfully, I've got an understanding family. Uh, but now, Miracle and Miracles, even able to take a day off, mm. you know, is a big thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think you, that's... You, you may be not seeing that, even seeing the financial rewards as yet. But, but getting some time to yourself. But some time is just, Absolutely. Yeah. I think, it's, I think it's worth anybody listening to this who's, who's thought about going into business on their own or perhaps even more importantly has ventured into the early days of going into business on their own. You only get the rewards once all of the spade work has been put in and that's typically your own blood, sweat, tears, time, all the rest of it, sacrificing, if you said family time, it could be sacrificing nights out. Absolutely. For me, it's early mornings. Uh -huh. Got to up, I'm up super early in the morning. That means at night, by nine o'clock, I'm dead beat. But yeah. that's just the way it has to be. Of course. Um, other people, it works other way around. They, they prefer working late on into the night, but you have to put the hours in. And one of the things I've picked up from, from what you've been saying a few times is you have to be open and willing to get and help when you feel you need it, because eventually we do run out of ideas, we do run out of steam, we run out of knowledge, then it's important to bring in some help. I think uh, with maturity, with age, perhaps that was a little easier for me. I think as a you know, as a younger guy, girl, just going into business, you think you've got to prove that you know it all, and it all lies on you. You know, that, I realised that I can't do that. And I think you, finding the right people, asking the right questions, and a lot of time it is asking the right questions, mm -hmm. not blagging for the sake of blagging. And I think that does, it finds you out eventually. So be honest, be honest to yourself especially. Uh, and then I think through hard work, uh, you might do okay. You might not be financially, you know, millionaire or whatever, but you're doing what you want to do and you're being successful at it. I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's, it's the whole, it's it's a hackneyed expression, but if you if your job is doing what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Now, obviously that's, you know, because I know for a fact, like any other business owner, you'll spend hours doing what you love with regards to whiskey, but then you need to do the books and other things that you maybe don't love. That's yeah. just part and parcel of it. But there is an enormous sense of satisfaction when you've 
built something like you have from the ground up and you're seeing it going from strength to strength, that that's worth a million dollars, metaphorically speaking. Although the million dollars, I'm sure, would be nice, but you get my point. It is, uh, absolutely. Uh, the whiskey business is fantastic. Don't let me, you know, try and make it sound hard. Well, it is hard to get where you're going, but wonderful people, talking to wonderful people, when you're relaxing, sitting, having a drink, just the spirit of conversation, happy times, even in sad times, you know, it's amazing. And the, the, that's the, that whole whiskey influence, I think, has, it's engulfed, it's Scotland and it's history. And I'm starting to see that in my own life as well, and I, I want to make the most of it through the good points. Yeah. I think it's a really, really good takeaway from this is, is um, what, what you've just sort of said in that, those last few sentences is you've you've distilled down to the heart of the matter. It's the stuff that you enjoy yeah. about your job. And that's and that and that is the stuff we remember, you know, regardless of what our business is, it's when we have a great time with it or we've done a great job for a client or in your case it might be securing a particular whiskey and then selling it on to a customer. Sure. They tell you, Jim, loved that, that was absolutely fantastic. Those are the moments that you live for. Um, when when you when you're growing a business, but if my wife's uh, listening to this, I work terribly hard and it's hard work and it it brings me to my knees every day. Yeah, of course, of course. But apart from that, it's absolutely brilliant. Is that you blagging there? It's absolutely brilliant fun. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, um, I'd had a few questions. You've pretty much covered them, Jim. You're an excellent orator. I've really enjoyed listening to you. I must be with the. Professorship thing comes in exactly. Well, there you go. See, I didn't know that you, that that's that was your background, so that, that allayed any fears because you never know how people are going to be when they're sitting in front of, of a microphone. Um, but you've, you've been absolutely wonderful to listen to. Um, where can people find your business online? Sure. Well, first and foremost, let me say Spirit of Alba on the Cowgate in Kirkintilloch. Doors are always open. Let me come in and see me. Introduce yourself. Uh, online. At spiritofalba.com, Facebook, all those things. It's all Spirit of Alba. Find us, Spirit of Alba. Yeah, excellent. Um, Jim, fantastic to speak to you. Thanks for being the first official guest on the Talking Shop Media podcast. It's been great. Thank you. Brilliant. And I'm, I'm looking forward to leaving here and trying a couple of those beers you brought me. They'll be, I'm looking forward to them. One of the other things you stock as well, isn't it? Craft beer. That's right. Yeah, yeah. We just uh, got the fridges in a few weeks ago. That's going successfully as well. Brilliant. I'm looking forward to trying them. And um, hopefully we can do this again, do a follow-up later down the road. Look forward to it. Yeah, excellent. Okay, folks, so that's been the Talking Shop Media podcast. That was episode two. You can learn more about Talking Shop Media. Myself, Mark, and Fergus, my partner, over at talkingshopmedia.co.uk. Thanks again to Jim for joining us. If you've enjoyed this podcast, tell a friend about it over on the Spotify page for the podcast. You're able to record us little voice messages. So if you've got anything you'd like to follow up on um, that we've talked about with Jim today or any suggestions for future guests or things you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, you can leave us a message. But in the meantime, folks, thanks for listening. Bye.